Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tim Besley. I'm a member of the economics department at the LSE and also W. Arthur Lewis Professor of Development Economics. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, welcome you to this event, um, the W. Arthur Lewis Lecture this year. Um, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar um, with uh, Arthur Lewis, he was a member of the economics department, uh, both as a student and as a member of our faculty um, and uh, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and went on to uh, win the Nobel Prize in 1979 for his seminal work on uh, in development economics. Indeed, one might even say that he was one of the founders of the field of development economics. Um, each time we hold uh, an Arthur Lewis lecture, we invite a distinguished economist to talk about a topic of their choice in honor of uh, Sir, Sir, uh, Arthur Lewis. And today, I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Peter Henry from NYU to be our lecturer. Uh, Peter has had an illustrious career, um, uh, beginning at the University of North Carolina, subsequently a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, where he took his bachelor's in mathematics, uh, then switched to economics, has a PhD from MIT, uh, was at Stanford, and then became uh, the dean of the Stern Business School at NYU. Uh, Peter has a, a very broad academic interest in macroeconomics and finance uh, and in uh, development and growth. Uh, and, uh, and I think they will influence uh, what he speaks to us about today where he's going to talk about the global infrastructure gap. Uh, the format of the afternoon will be uh, that Peter will speak for approximately 30 minutes. Then there'll be lots of opportunity for you to ask questions and for us to engage in discussion. Peter, um, welcome to uh, LSE virtually. We all wish, of course, that you were here in person and we're very much looking forward uh, to your lecture. Tim, thank you very much. It's a delight and an honor to be giving the W. Arthur Lewis Lecture. I have to say it's particularly uh, meaningful to me, both because although my accent no longer sounds like it, I'm originally from Jamaica, so I'm from the Caribbean, just like Sir Arthur. And in addition to that connection, uh, my great and late colleague at NYU, William Baumel, was also uh, at, the, at the LSE and was in fact a dear friend of Arthur Lewis. So it's particularly meaningful, meaningful for me to have the opportunity to, uh, to be with you today, so thank you. And with that, <clears throat> I'm going to share my screen and um, have a chat about the global infrastructure gap, potential perils and a framework for distinction. I should say that this is joint work with Camille Gardner Camille Gardner has just completed her first year of her PhD program at Brown University. Uh, she was a former uh, fellow of mine in the program called the PhD Excellence Initiative. The PhD Excellence Initiative is a Sloan Foundation funded um, initiative that has as its principal goal to get more US underrepresented, min underrepresented minorities into PhD programs um, in economics. So with that, let us, uh, let us begin. So this, this talk uh, uh, and uh, this paper is really based uh, and motivated uh, by two principal facts. And fact number one 
is that if we look in poor countries, countries that are defined or, um, uh, or labeled by the International Monetary Fund as emerging and developing economies, we see that 1.2 billion people in emerging and developing economies have no electricity and another billion live more than two kilometers from an all weather road. So there is indeed uh, a shortage of infrastructure services in emerging and developing economies, certainly relative to, to advanced economies. Fact number two is that in April 2015, the World Bank uh, claimed that by moving from billions to trillions in infrastructure investment in poor countries, private capital in rich countries uh, could accomplish three things. Number one, close the infrastructure services gap that I just alluded to in the previous slide. And number two, achieve the sustainable development goals. And three, make money. So these are big claims. Uh, they're important claims. Uh, but the very important question is whether in fact there's any basis for these claims empirically. So in other words, the World Bank has put forth a hypothesis that the private sector in advanced economies uh, can both uh, achieve the sustainable development goals, close the infrastructure services gap and make money. And the question uh, that I asked in the paper on which this talk is based is the following. Is it true that poor countries have widespread potential for publicly efficient and privately profitable investment in infrastructure? In other words, think about publicly efficient and privately profitable. What do those two things really mean? The publicly efficient portion of that sentence refers to the first two things that the World Bank claimed, namely that it's possible to fill the infrastructure services gap, that, that is to provide a public service, roads and electricity, for instance, and to do so in a way that is uh, publicly efficient means to actually um, use public funds uh, in an efficient way to provide those services. And we'll talk in some more detail about what that public investment means like when, it's a, when it is efficient. Uh, executed. The other side of that, the and side of the clause is to be privately profitable. So is it possible to both provide public services that are needed or desired, think again, electricity and roads, uh, in a way that's publicly efficient? And also, is it possible to do it in a way that actually makes money for the private sector? So that is the question that I will attempt uh, to address uh, in the talk today. So just a bit of background then. Um, if we look at what happened after the World Bank issued this communique in 2015, so roughly six years ago. So very soon after the World Bank issued this communique, it had its desired effect of actually garnering uh, a lot of public attention. So a year subsequent to the announcement um, that the World Bank made, and the World Bank in conjunction with the International Monetary Fund and a number of other multilateral development banks, such as the Asian Development Bank and the African Development Bank. Subsequent to that announcement, the McKinsey Global Institute published 
a very influential report claiming that the world had a $1 trillion annual infrastructure investment gap. So what do they mean or what did McKinsey mean by claiming that there was a trillion dollar annual infrastructure investment gap? Well, basically what they meant by that is that if you took as of 2016, forecasts for global growth as given and asked yourself the question, how much infrastructure investment would need to ha happen in order to achieve uh, the, forecast, the forecasted uh, targets for GDP growth annually and compared that quantity, the forecasted uh, amount of investment that would need to happen with the amount of infrastructure investment that was actually scheduled to happen, um, you got a gap. And that gap precisely was $800 billion, but rounding, we get to roughly a trillion dollars. And so uh, when McKinsey published this report, this really initiated this language of the global infrastructure gap that has become part of uh, kind of the common parlance of uh, the multilateral institutions, the private sector, and also um, uh, the NGOs. So not to be outdone, following um, McKinsey's uh, pronouncement of the global infrastructure investment gap, the private sector, in this case, uh, the JP Morgan, decided to get into this business of addressing the infrastructure investment gap. And so just prior to the onset of COVID in January of 2020, uh, JP Morgan announced that they were launching a development finance institution precisely to try to address this threefold claim by the World Bank um, that it was possible to both, you know, basically do good and do well at the same time. And uh, JP Morgan announced that they were um, uh, starting this institute to actually try to catalyze precisely uh, this sort of billions to trillions phenomenon of generating more private capital to flow to the, uh, the public sector, essentially, infrastructure investment in emerging and developing economies in order to close this uh, trillion dollar infrastructure gap to which, um, to which McKinsey uh, referred in their 2016 launch. So as you can see, momentum is beginning to build. There's the World Bank, there's the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, we have JP Morgan, uh, one of the world's largest and most uh, prestigious banks uh, following suit. Not to be outdone, um, the US Treasury has also focused some attention on this issue. Uh, with permission, this is a slide that I'm sharing from a Treasury uh, International Affairs Department uh, meeting last December. And you can see very clearly here that the US Treasury is also very focused on this idea of a global infrastructure gap. So with that motivation, I want to um, offer a bit of a uh, cautionary uh, uh, note here. And the cautionary note is as follows. Uh, Tim, in his introductory remarks, you know, mentioned uh, Arthur Lewis and the birth of development economics. Arthur Lewis certainly uh, was a major contributor uh, to the field, um, but also his colleagues, uh, Roy Harrod and Evzi Domar, made big contributions as well. And in failing to embrace uh, what I would call positive equilibrium analysis, 
the normative notions of a global infrastructure gap and quote unquote needed investment bear an unfortunate similarity to the so-called financing gap of Herod and Domar. So like the McKinsey Global Institute conception, the Herod-Domar model asserted that a desired rate of, of economic growth requires a target level of investment. And the way the model works without getting into the technical details is that given national savings, or in the case of um, the McKinsey Global Institute, a scheduled, uh, uh, scheduled investment, target investment implies a financing gap that's equal to the difference between these two quantities. So in other words, if the target level of investment is less than national savings, you have a savings or investment gap that you need to fill. In the case of the Harrod Domar model, the idea was that international donors or international capital would fill that gap. And in the case of the McKinsey Global Institute uh, and this notion of an infra infrastructure investment gap, there's this gap between a desired level of infrastructure financing and what uh, we expect to see based on what, um, what surveys tell us, um, governments and, and businesses are planning to, to spend on infrastructure. So armed with the framework of the financing gap, we know that in the 1950s, rich countries sought to help poor countries grow by filling the gap. And they failed, the rich countries did, and along with their agents, like the World Bank, they failed because they did not ask whether filling the gap with needed investment would actually correct some market failure, incentivize production, and endogenously raise incomes. In other words, it's not just enough to have a target level of investment. One actually has, to, from a, 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 a demand side perspective, in terms of, rec of recognizing that there are infrastructure services that people would like to have provided, it's also important to ask whether there is an incentive on the supply side of the economy uh, to provide the investment that's required to actually um, to provide the desired services. In other words, um, investment and savings and growth are an equilibrium outcome of various interactions in the economy and um, the development economists and the development institutions to some extent really lost sight of that fact. So the question then that we need to ask ourselves in the current context of the infrastructure investment gap is whether we are looking at, um, to quote um, the famous uh, New York Yankees American baseball player, uh, Yogi Berra, are we experiencing deja vu all over again? And according to some work by Ken Rogoff, Bill Easterly, Carmen Reinhardt, co-authors and others, there's there's a fair amount of evidence uh, that suggests that, um, that we are, in fact, in some danger of, uh, of repeating mistakes of the past. So this picture, this graph, um, uh, gives just a flavor of um, what the kinds of things we need to be very, very cautious about. So the graph, uh, I really need to focus on the blue line and, and the green line. The blue line is the average growth rate in emerging and developing economies of infrastructure. Uh, technically, it's actually public investment, which um, includes more than infrastructure, but think of public investment here as a proxy 
that the IMF has put together for investment in infrastructure. And what you can see for the emerging and developing economies is that in the, uh, in the, uh, in the early 1970s, there was a rapid increase in the growth rate of infrastructure. You know, there's, there's a lot of public investment that took place in the 70s. And we know uh, with hindsight that much of this investment was, was, uh, was funded by heavy government borrowing uh, from the commercial banks and led to the debt crisis, which Ken Rogoff uh, write, wrote about in his handbook piece in 1991. But notice that this rapid increase uh, in public investment, the growth rate of the infrastructure, uh, was accompanied actually by not an increase in productivity, the green line here is, is productivity, average productivity growth in the emerging and developing economies, we actually see um, declining productivity growth. The productivity growth actually turns negative um, by the time we get to uh, time we get to 1980. So this is just a graph, obviously, of aggregate data, and we need to be cautious about interpreting it because, for instance, you might think very naturally that infrastructure works with a lag on productivity, and so you might expect you would, might not expect there to be an immediate positive response of infrastructure, uh, sorry, productivity growth to investment in infrastructure, again, maybe roads and electricity, but we don't see a pickup in productivity growth in the emerging and developing economies, frankly, until the mid 1990s. And so it sort of strains the imagination to believe that investments in infrastructure that were made in the 1970s don't begin to have productivity payoffs until the 1990s. And so this just begs the question, um, or just forces us to, to realize that it's very easy uh, to invest in infrastructure in a way that does not generate productivity gains, but that in, instead leads to financial crises, as Ken Rogoff wrote about in his 1991 um, piece about the, the, the third world debt crisis, and that Carmen Reinhardt and others have warned us about, particularly in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby China has been lending for infrastructure to uh, African countries in particular um, in the last, uh, within the last uh, five to 10 years. And we're seeing even before COVID hit and caused severe uh, financial distress in, in, in a number of African uh, and developing economies more generally, there were, so, there were signs that the World Bank warned about um, and the IMF warned about of growing financial distress in African countries that had borrowed in order to finance infrastructure, had borrowed under the Belt and Road Initiative. And so the key question then is what would sustainable, not in the green sense, although that's gonna be very important as well, but in a financial sense, in an economic sense, how do we, um, how do we actually ensure that investment in infrastructure is economically sustainable? That's the, that's the key question. And so what this, uh, what this paper does is just proposes a framework for thinking about uh, the conditions under which infrastructure investment will be both publicly efficient to generate uh, the sort of social gains, if you will, to society, but also privately efficient um, and, 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 and economically efficient uh, so that uh, the loans or the borrowing that's uh, whatever form the financing takes for the infrastructure investment will be sustainable over time. So this is really motivated by some recent work that shows actually that um, 
capital flows um, to developing countries, uh, the biggest welfare gains, the biggest gains to society of capital flowing from rich countries to poor countries um, is not actually, um, does not actually lie uh, in the context of private sector flows from rich countries flowing to the private sector in emerging and developing economies. And this is, uh, this is not unrelated to something called the Lucas paradox, which I don't have time to get into great detail here today, but there's some recent work, work which basically shows that the greatest welfare gains that now exist um, in terms of capital flowing from rich to poor countries is from the private sector potentially in rich countries to the public sector in poor countries. And this, this schematic diagram really uh, is just showing that we need to think about the world in a slightly more nuanced way than we typically think about when we think about capital flows. So in, in the, the textbook models of capital flows, we just typically thought about rich countries having lots of one type of capital and poor countries have, having little of one type of capital. And therefore, because poor countries had little capital, um, the rate of return there was higher and therefore capital should flow from rich to poor countries. Uh, well, what do we know? We know that <clears throat> since the late 1980s, early 1990s, when poor countries liberalized uh, flows of private, uh, flows into the private capital market into their countries, that private capital has actually flowed from rich countries to poor countries and, and to the point where the differences between the rates of return on private capital in poor countries and private capital in rich countries, as indicated by uh, Roman numeral number five here, is quite, quite, quite low. Those differentials have almost disappeared. But the rate of return differential between private rich capital, which is in the upper right-hand corner, and public poor capital, which is in the lower left-hand corner, and denoted by Roman numeral, Roman numeral number two, there is some work which suggests that there are still some large there are still some large untapped welfare gains uh, for private rich capital to flow to the public sector in poor countries. And this flow from private rich to public poor is really what the World Bank is arguing exists. And the question is whether we see in practice uh, differentials uh, such that our public poor, the rate of return on public capital or infrastructure in poor countries really is higher than the rate of return on private capital in rich countries. So that's the question we have to, we have to try to grapple with. And so if we want then to ask ourselves the, uh, the question, under what conditions will it be both publicly efficient and privately profitable and therefore economically sustainable to ha have private capital flow from rich countries, the private sector of rich countries, to the public sector of poor countries, we need to take a step back and just think about the conditions for public efficiency and the conditions for private profitability. So first let's ask the question, under what conditions, and let's take, let's take a country, let's, let's, uh, let's pretend we're talking about uh, Kenya. <laughs> When will it be efficient for the Kenyan government to add an additional kilometer of roads? Well, if the rate of return, the economic rate of return to building another kilometer of roads in Kenya exceeds the rate of return to private capital in Kenya, 
then it's efficient for the Kenyan government, if it wants to maximize welfare, to allocate some savings um, that could otherwise um, be uh, devoted to uh, investment in private capital to investment in building the road. In other words, if the rate of return, economic rate of return to building another kilometer of roads exceeds the rate of return to private capital, it's efficient at the margin to invest another dollar of, um, of savings in infrastructure, in roads in this case. And that's what's depicted on the x-axis here. The x-axis uh, is the ratio uh, donated by, uh, denoted by rho, x, where x stands for infrastructure, uh, WC stands for within country. So when, when the ratio of the rate of return on infrastructure, which is Rx, to the rate of return on, on private capital, Rk, when that ratio exceeds one, it's efficient for the government to invest in infrastructure, whether it be roads or electricity. And so we, th so we think of that as a hurdle rate. And that hurdle rate is denoted by this, dash, this vertical dashed line uh, at the point um, rho uh, xwc equal to one. That's what the vertical line st stands for. So to, for, all, um, for all rows that li lie to the right of that dashed vertical line, it's efficient for the government to invest in infrastructure. But remember the motivation for the talk in the first place. It's fine to say it's efficient for Kenya to invest in roads. It's publicly efficient for Kenya to invest in roads, but Kenya we know is a poor country. And the question therefore is, given the lack of resources in Kenya, when will it also be privately profitable potentially for foreign capital to invest um, in roads in Kenya? And there are a lot of details here because there's a question of you know, how, what would be the mechanism by, by which the private sector could actually invest in roads in Kenya? And that's an important detail that perhaps we can, we can talk about uh, when it comes to Q&A, but all we're, the question we just wanna answer here is um, when it is, would it even be feasible? And it will only be feasible if the rate of return on roads, again, in Kenya, is higher than the rate of return on private capital, let's say the United States. So in other words, there's no incentive for private capital to flow from the United States to roads in Kenya, unless uh, the rate of return on roads in Kenya exceeds the rate of return on private capital in the US. That's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Right, um, and so a necessary condition, uh, as, denote, as denoted by this horizontal dashed line, is that the rate of return on infrastructure, Rx in Kenya, needs to exceed the rate of return on private capital in the United States, Rk star. In other words, if the rate of return on roads in Kenya, the economic rate of return is 50%, and the rate of return on private capital in the United States is 5%, then Rx over Rk star, that ratio is 10, right? And will lie above this horizontal dashed line, which is the second hurdle rate. Uh, it's the hurdle rate um, for cross-country uh, uh, investment to happen in, uh, in, 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 in infrastructure from the private sector uh, in rich countries. And so what's, what's useful about this, about this graph 
is that these two hurdle rates, the within country uh, hurdle rate for public efficiency and the cross country hurdle rate uh, for private profitability divide the world into four quadrants, okay? And I want you to just focus on the upper right-hand quadrant for now. Countries that fall into the upper right-hand quadrant, so Kenya for roads, or you could also look at Kenya for electricity, right? So pick a given country and look at the type of infrastructure, and we can ask the question, is it the case that it both passes the hurdle rate for uh, for public efficiency and the hurdle rate for private profitability. If so, it'll fall into the upper right-hand quadrant. And countries that fall into the upper right-hand quadrant uh, for a given type of infrastructure are precisely those cases that the World Bank is arguing was arguing for in their 2015 communique. So what I wanna do with the remainder of my, uh, my time here is talk to you a little bit about the data. So what do we actually see? we actually look at the data that we have on the economic rate of return in emerging and developing economies uh, for a given type of infrastructure, whether it be roads or electricity, how many countries actually fall into this upper right-hand quadrant? Very simple. Okay, so let's look at what the data have to say about this. And the data, come from a paper by uh, David Canning and Ezra uh, Benathan. Um, David Canning is a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, his co-author, uh, uh, Ezra Benathan, is, is, is deceased. Uh, they wrote a paper in the year 2000. It was commissioned by the World Bank, and they did something incredibly useful. They actually looked at the data on, from 53 poor countries and estimated the rate of return on paved roads and the rate of return on electricity generating capacity, as well as the rate of return on all capital. So you can think about that as the rate of return of private capital. And they did this for 53 emerging and developing economies. And they had the same data for 16 rich countries. And so um, when you go through all the data that they collected, they, they essentially ran uh, kind of very sophisticated um, panel data regressions estimating uh, pr um, production functions um, and essentially estimated the, the, the elasticity of GDP with respect to each type of infrastructure and use those estimates to generate uh, uh, computations uh, of the rate of return on roads and electricity. And they had enough data to do this for 26 uh, countries for roads and 49 countries for electricity. So in other words, uh, they, were, they had a total of 75, if you will, country infrastructure return observations that we can basically take to this dual hurdle framework that I showed you in my previous slide to ask you know, whether the World Bank's hypothesis has any empirical bite. Now, one caution I'll, 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 and a very important point I'll mention about the data is when, when Canning and Nathan did their work in the year 2000, they had to do it based on cost data, and, and the cost data referred to the cost of building infrastructure that they got from the World Bank was based on, on 1985 cost data. So in other words, these data are quite dated. If you think about building roads or installing electricity, the technology you know, has, has almost certainly changed quite a bit since 1985. Um, but the point of this exercise is 
that it provides us a template for thinking about how with updated data, and very importantly, uh, one of the main points I wanna make in this talk is it's imperative upon the World Bank to actually update the data. Because the World Bank actually issued this communique in 2015. It's sort of a data-free exercise, if you will. They made no reference to the canning of an Nathan study. And um, they made no reference, frankly, to economic rates of return whatsoever in their communique. And so you can think of the canning of an Nathan data as an anchor, if you will. If the World Bank had just looked at the data that they had um, garnered in-house as of the year 2000, they could have at least said something about what we knew in 2015 when they issued this communique based on the old data as some guideline to begin thinking about this question. And ideally they would have had um, you know, uh, updated data and ideally the World Bank will, will frankly update the data that they have, have right now. But I'm going to just show you what the results look like given the old data. And let me do that uh, fairly swiftly. So here's what we see when we actually look at the data. Of the 75 country infrastructure return observation, so only 39 fall into quadrant one. So only 39 out of 75 country infrastructure observations essentially pass the dual hurdle test for being both privately profitable and publicly efficient. And uh, those 39 observations are spread across 32 countries. So another way to say that is that there are 21 countries in which there were no quadrant one infrastructure investment opportunities. So almost two fifths of the countries in the sample did not have quadrant one publicly efficient, privately profitable infrastructure investment opportunities. And that's actually quite striking given the World Bank's claim in 2015, right? Of those 39 quadrant one infrastructure investment opportunities, 21 were in roads and the mean return in those 39, uh, uh, in, the, in the 21 road opportunities were 10.2 times larger than the mean return on rich country capital. So in other words, quadrant one opportunities are not necessarily abundant, but where they do exist, they're actually quite large relative to the, to the rate of return on private, private capital. Um, for electricity, um, there were 18 quadrant one opportunities and the return uh, on, 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 on infrastructure on electricity uh, relative to the return on private capital in rich countries is not, not, not quite as large, only 2.2 times as large. I've also put the medians there in parentheses so you can see. So in other words, the joint prevalence of efficient and profitable infrastructure opportunities in poor countries was modest in comparison with the world, with the claims made in the World Bank communique. Okay, 21 to 53 countries did not clear the dual hurdles for roads or electricity. Of the 32 countries with projects that cleared the dual hurdles, only seven countries cleared the hurdles in both electricity and roads. So in other words, only, there are only, you know, there, there were less than one seventh of the countries in the sample in 1985 that presented a data-driven case for efficient and profitable investment. And that raises real questions about the wisdom of the World Bank pushing a billions to trillions agenda without some pretty important qualifications um, about where these profitable investment opportunities actually exist. So it is useful though to recognize the fact that even though these 
again, based on the old data, even though these opportunities are not uh, highly prevalent, in other words, they're not ubiquitous, in those countries that of 19, as of 1985 had quadrant one investment opportunities in infrastructure, the average excess return multiple in those countries in infrastructure was quite large. So what do I mean by large? So I mentioned earlier that the return on infrastructure, for example, in roads uh, in the poor countries was 10.2 times as large as return on private capital uh, in rich countries. So just how big is that? And this is the last, uh, the last uh, thing I'll say before, before we take questions. If we think about the world in 1985, in 1985, emerging economies did not allow foreigners to invest uh, in portfolio equity in their countries. So the stock market, the, the expected return on the stock market in poor countries um, at that time was about 1.7 times as large as the rate of, as the rate of return on stocks um, in rich countries. And so the fact that the return on infrastructure is roughly 10.2 times as large as the rate of return on capital in rich countries means that the rate of return on infrastructure is about six times larger. Uh, the excess return on infrastructure is about six times larger than the excess return on stocks in emerging developing economies before they liberalized capital flows. So in other words, if you think about it, in 19, when, when emerging and developing economies liberalized their stock markets in the late 1980s and early 1990s and allowed portfolio equity flows, this led to the creation of a whole new class of assets called emerging market equity. And if a 1.7 excess return multiple was sufficient to do that, then this, the seven-fold excess return multiple that exists on poor country um, that exists on infrastructure return would seem to be extremely large relative to, to, to those opportunities. Uh, uh, and that again is in roads. In electricity, it's a lot less eye-popping. So just to conclude then, um, there don't yet exist widespread tradable claims on poor country infrastructure. They're still quite limited. Um, but the dual hurdle analysis provides a framework for distinguishing countries where the creation of tradable claims might be beneficial from those where it would not. In other words, poor countries could pull a lever, a policy lever called opening the stock market to foreign investors in the late 1980s and early 1990s and generate portfolio equity flows that research actually shows generated uh, higher real investment, higher wages and higher growth. Not so easy to do that for, um, for infrastructure because we don't have tradable claims, so to speak, on roads in Kenya. But what, these, what the framework shows and what the data show is that there are some countries where the potential benefits uh, from doing so, that is creating tradable claims in infrastructure would be quite large, but there are many countries where it is not the case. So too much has happened since 1985 to draw distinctions based on information from that year. But we really think that the new analysis of old data, A, provides a template that can readily be applied to updated cross-country data on the social rate of return on infrastructure. And B, most importantly, demonstrates the urgency of the World Bank collecting and disseminating and validating that data as soon as possible. Uh, so with that, 
I'm going to stop and turn it over to my colleague and friend Tim Mesley. Thank you very much, Peter. Lots of very interesting thoughts there. Can I just sort of um, ask a, just a general question about how you how you think about this? Because um, if, if we think of the development challenge, it's not about just about finance. I mean, finance is important, and you, you pointed out, but it's it, it's how we think about our capacity through either good policy advice or building institutions. We can raise the return. Quite right. Some of these investments, whereas, as I understood it, and, and, and this is an important piece of the, the the whole picture, you're kind of saying, let's measure those returns and then think about investment flows for a given set of returns. But I guess I flip what you're showing around and say, well, shouldn't the focus be on how we generate more of those high returns if the infrastructure challenge, the one you framed, is going to be successful. So how, how are you thinking about, about that issue? I think it's exactly right, Tim. And so if I can just share my screen again for, for, for a minute. Um, the point that you've made is the following. So as you said, there's some countries that fall into quadrant one just based on where they are today. And the data sort of tells us that. And your point, Tim, is that you know, by, by having better policy, so think about countries that fall into quadrant two, for instance, countries where um, it's publicly efficient for them to, they, they, would, they would benefit from more infrastructure, but the return rate of return just isn't high enough. And the one way to increase the rate of return on infrastructure, as you quite rightly mentioned, is to improve the policies, to improve the institutions, to move yourself into quadrant one, right? And so I think that's exactly right. This, what this analysis does is it says, given where we are in terms of both policies and institutions within the country, here's what we can say. And for countries that, for, that don't pass the dual hurdle test, it doesn't mean that infrastructure wouldn't be useful potentially, but in order to, to as, you, as you rightly point out, to fully reap the benefits of infrastructure and to be able to do so in a way that would allow it to, uh, those investments to be um, economically sustainable over time um, may require everything from uh, more open trade policy to, frankly, just uh, a, a better investment climate. Because one of the one of the other issues that's related to institutions, Tim, is just sort of this idea of appropriability. So, so even if you um, taking your taking your good point and, and holding that constant and thinking about the, the small set of countries for which it is feasible for them to uh, uh, attract infrastructure investment, institutional shortcomings may mean that even though the economic rates of return exceed the financial rates, required financial rates of return, that um, if for instance, it's not uh, possible to, to, to write contracts, multi-year contracts that you can be assured will be uh, honored by future governments, then the risk may still be too high in order to justify, justify the investment even though economic rates return are quite high. And so you're quite right to point out the role of institutions and policies here. And I have a sort of re related question slash observation on the extent to which for different kinds of infrastructure projects and I guess for different uh, overarching legal structures, mm -hmm. it's feasible for private sector investment 
uh, to realize uh, these returns or to capture these returns. Mm -hmm. So if you think about roads, so you know one, one way to capture returns from roads is to have tolls or user charges. The alternative is to know, instead have a government just hand over some you know, amount of public spending to the private sector in exchange for building roads. And of course, which funding model you use, you might have very different private sector investments depending on whether, whether the private investors are thinking, well, I can actually you know, believe that the government is indeed going to turn over this toll revenue or other things. And, and energy would be a similar set of considerations. So I guess what makes investable projects from a private sector point of view is going to depend very much on what funding arrangements can be put in place. And that's going to vary a lot by sector and, and also by kind of the, again, it comes back to the institutional framework in place in government for government. Absolutely. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an example in the paper in the context of uh, uh, water and sanitation, actually, which speaks to your, your, your point, Tim. There's the, uh, there's the case of, I believe it's in uh, um, uh, Peru, I believe, um, of a, a water company that was uh, water and sanitation services that were privatized and then funded by private capital. And to your point about the model of um, essentially uh, the business model under which it operated, at some point, at sort of five years into the contract, uh, the operators came to the conclusion they needed to raise prices. Well, of course, the, the, the citizens who were receiving the services had a different point of view. And actually, there were riots about this. And the government then reneged on the contract. And so... There are different equilibria one has to think about in terms of kind of what's what's sustainable over time from you know the point of view of the country with, with, in which you're doing business versus sort of the the you know kind of financial rates of return you require to oper operate there. And one very interesting point um, also about um, um, uh, about the model here, I'll just sort of mention for for folks who are interested. Because you mentioned Tim, sort of, you know, whether the government just sort of turns over the operations, um, um, or or has a toll road or something like that. Um, one of the interesting insights that I came across in in, in writing this paper is there's a, there's a whole literature in urban economics about um, how to think about future cities, and this is really relevant because the that the, the the lion's share of infrastructure is going to be needed be built in the next 15 years is going to actually be in cities in the developing world. Why is that? Because this, there's the world's in the middle of what's called um, the completion of the urbanization project, which means between the year 2000 and 2030, we're kind of halfway through the transition. The UN forecast that uh, the, the urban population in developing countries was going to double from two to 4 billion. And so there's going to be, large increase in demand for urban space in the developing world, and therefore the need for roads. And one of the insights that comes out of the urban economics literature is, is the, the, the one way in which to sort of maximize, if you will, the social rate of return to roads is to acquire land today for future road building. In other words, just laying an arterial dirt grid, literally a dirt grid of dirt roads, um, and basically planning out sort of public space around that dirt arterial grid. In other words, before kind of urban sprawl takes place, and then you have to 
to your point, Tim, engage in very costly conversations about land acquisition, doing, doing planning forward um, and, 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 and laying those dirt roads today and laying out that, infra that, 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 that grid may actually generate higher returns than almost anything else um, uh, in, in, the, in the future. Right, and, and actually there's a question come in that's sort of related to this part of the conversation from Arya Rohit Pitra uh, from Delhi, who says, uh, some developing countries invest in infrastructure, even if the Rho times WC is less than one, simply because their object is welfare rather than returns on investment. Do you think if this is correct, then more investments will be in quadrant one um, than, uh, sorry, I lost it off the bottom of the page, uh, will be in, in quadrant one. Uh, uh, sorry, I, it's, the, the thing moved up. Anyway, you, you, get, the, yeah, no, you a, get the question. Yes, thanks for the question, Tim. So I think it's a very important point. Uh, governments have objectives other than, uh, other than efficiency, but um, if investments continue to happen in public, in, in public infrastructure, but don't generate any economic returns, then you run into the problem that at some point in time, you may, not, you, you, you may be in an unsustainable financial position. And so to Tim's earlier point, the key for those countries that maybe for instance in quadrant two that, that at find a legitimate social and fuel political need to invest in infrastructure will be to think about how, what kinds of policy changes do we, we need to make to actually raise the rate of return so that we can undertake infrastructure investments that are both socially desirable, but will also be financially sustainable over time. Uh, so that's the way I would think about that. And so that's why it's so important. I think your, your, your point was so right. We have to think about um, these as complementary uh, facets, not substitutes. Right. Thanks. And, and Aria just reminded me in the Q&A that uh, uh, they're actually um, uh, in uh, Dubai. Um, so we're now, we're now moving to the US. I have a question from Sarah Davies, who's at SUNY Albany, who says, how does the cost of corruption paying bribes factor into this? Uh, and what can be done to mitigate that cost? Thank you for the question. It's an important, it's an important question. It, um, it feeds into the question, issue of appropriability. So you can have a, an economic rate of return, let's, let's, say, let's call it 60%. Uh, and that might exceed the required uh, financial rate of return um, in, let's say, a developed country, which let's, let's say it's 7%. But because of corruption, because of bribes uh, and other risks, uh, that endangers the appropriability of, of the investment. And that can effectively raise the risk premium, right, by so much that the investment, even with a 60% rate of return compared to a 7%, you know, um, non-risk adjusted cost of capital, once you adjust for risk, it could become so high that you can't actually undertake the investment. So the bottom line is that, uh, sir, all those factors that you mentioned uh, could work to undermine appropriability and make um, otherwise economically efficient projects to undertake uh, infeasible. Cool, so the e easiest question we're gonna have all day is uh, recommendations for further reading. Uh, because Peter has agreed to make his paper available and we'll put it up on the event website. So you can certainly start with further reading by reading Peter's paper, and I'm sure there's lots of good references in there. Um, so that's to respond to those questions from Oliver Gray and Elora Mukherjee. Um, 
Okay, so an interesting observation here from Kathy Shandling. Uh, she doesn't say where she's from, but uh, the question is, I spent 25 years in the infrastructure development sector. Please note that infrastructure is not just transportation and energy, which I'm sure right. you're aware. The sector also includes the, the water and wastewater sectors, as well as the energy water sector. And then uh, the comment goes on. In terms of infrastructure project development and operations, please note of the public-private sector concept and specifically the role of FD-BOT and FD-BOOT models that bring together both public and private funding. So I don't know whether you want to respond to that, that comment about on, on your presentation. Well, thank you. For, thank you for the comment. I think it's, I think it's very important. And I think that uh, I'll just say that um, the promise of public... Uh, private partnerships has been um, been less than I think uh, many, many had hoped for. Uh, Eduardo Engel and, um, and his co-authors have, have had, some, um, had some important research in this area and the, and the paper does, 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 does talk about this. Cool. Um, so a question on how, from Thomas Roche on actually how you calculate rates of return. Um, are, are they just monetary returns, or, or do, can you can you factor in other uh, the terminology here? And the question is softer factors. Yes. So the way, just briefly, the way in which the re the returns are calculated by Canning and Benathan, essentially, what you're doing is you're trying to you're 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 measuring the incremental impact on GDP of another dollar or pound or euro of investment in infrastructure, whether it be roads or electricity or to the earlier point, water, sanitation. In the case of Canning Benathan, they only had data on, 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 on roads and electricity. So it's not a financial rate of return. It's, you know, it's, 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 you can think of it as the percentage change in GDP you get for a one percentage increase um, in, um, in, infrastructure, in, in infrastructure investment. And to some of the other comments, it's why it's so important to recognize that we're talking about economic rates of return. Um, uh, and because those economic rates of return may not be wholly capturable or appropriable by the private sector, but in order to be, have an economically sustainable model, it's a necessary condition is that the economic rate of return exceeds the financial rate of, rate of, rate of return. Uh, thanks, Peter. So there's a, there's a question here um, about targets. Um, is, is there some uh, model countries or targets that should be invested in first so that they can be used as a blueprint for investment and return? And my understanding, and I guess I'm going to sort of add my own supplementary on this, that you, to some extent you are critiquing the use of targets because the whole kind of approach you began with is like, you know, the gap analysis tells us we should have these targets in these countries and somehow, am, am I right or wrong that you're, you're kind of in an anti-target space here? Yes, and I think there's two points to the question, Tim. I think, so Tim, you're absolutely right. On the point of targeting a specific level of investment, I think that's problematic because it ignores equilibrium concepts. So I think the, I think the, um, the ask of the question is also thinking about something in addition to that, so supposing we supposing we find a country that lands in the quadrant one, um, how do we think about one? One could think about targeting in another sense. So we have, let's say we have seven countries that fall into quadrant one. How do we think about targeting those countries in the sense of there's this you know economic rates of return that exceed private rates of return, but other things may need to happen in order to allow for appropriate appropriability and so on. 
how do we think about targeting the sense of what can we do to help those countries or who should, whom should we think about first in order to create conditions for appropriability and so forth. So I'm, that's, that's my own maybe additional interpretation of the question. I think in that sense, Tim, I would be, I would be comfortable with thinking about, okay, given that we, we, can, we can use this framework to say, where in the world do we see countries for whom it makes sense to begin a conversation about what it would take to uh, have appropriability, right? So for instance, if you think about, um, let's go back to our example of having you know, economic returns that are, 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 let's say 60% and you know, financial return, required returns in the advanced world are on the order of seven or 8%, but we're trying to find a way to mitigate the risk adjustment factor so that those projects can actually happen. Um, and perhaps even think about you know, creating tradable instruments, right? So in those countries where, there's, where the gaps are really quite large, the way I think about it is those are, those are countries that, that might be targeted for those kinds of conversations because the economic rate of return is, is sufficiently large relative to the financial rate of return in rich countries um, that any fixed costs, if you will, that would get absorbed by dealing with appropriability, tradability, and so forth, um, might, might still leave sufficient room, if you will, for productive arbitrage. Great, thanks. So an interesting question here from Chris Dan, who's based at the LSE. He says, a common phenomenon in many developing countries is not just the lack of infrastructure investment, but the fact that infrastructure projects become incomplete, unfinished. Do you feel this aspect of the infrastructure gap, uh, gap debate ought to be addressed more versus just focusing on whether governments or development banks find it efficient to invest in infrastructure on the margin? Yes, I do. Um, because that is clearly one of the um, one of the issues that can essentially drive up the cost over time, lower the effective economic rate of return, and um, you know uh, land 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 countries in a situation where um, where these things are actually not not very efficient. And there's a and there is a large literature again referred to in the paper that talks about various kinds of. Um, um, uh, inefficiencies that, that result from basically uh, overly rosy ex-ante estimates of the private rate of return, uh, both by governments and, uh, and, and, and private contractors on the outside, which then results in requests for renegotiation that become very costly uh, over time. Great. So we're going to go to, to, to South America now. Uh, Juliana Patusi, whose question uh, from Buenos Aires is, another problem we have in the Global South is the government presidential term implies four years and any infrastructure plan needs more than four years to implement. So we're involved in short-term solutions that are not efficient or sustainable. So it's, a, it's more of a, a, a comment, but perhaps something that you could uh, respond to, how you think about those type of issues. Thank you for the uh, the comment. I think it's, I think it's a deeply relevant comment. Um, certainly relevant to South America, and I think in particular um, about the recent um, uh, African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Um, lots of promise to potentially create <clears throat> a unified uh, trading area, and I know the African Union certainly has um, on its agenda infrastructure as part of what um, will uh, will need to um, be built out to 
to create some of those those greater efficiencies. But again, this this is a, this is a question um, that's going to be critical. How do you create how do you create sort of incentive you know incentive compatible conditions over time whereby the private sector can have confidence that irrespective of whether Besley's in power or Henry's in power, that, uh, that contracts will be honored. I don't have an answer to that, uh, that question, but again, I think what this framework does and more generally just forcing ourselves to think about rates of return and the various components of rates of return is to, is to recognize that these questions um, um, are critical. Um, and have to be addressed. And it's not just a matter of, as the World Bank has said, getting going from billions to trillions. And I, I, I can't help but note that in the UK, we recently established a National Infrastructure Commission with ex, an express role to try and have better infrastructure um, uh, strategic planning over a longer time horizon, trying in a sense to anticipate, I think, some of the issues you were just referring to, Peter, in the, were in the we're in the question. Um, we haven't talked about um, the word COVID hasn't been mentioned. Maybe that's refreshing uh, at this time, <laughs> but we're in the midst of a COVID crisis. We're in the midst of a climate crisis. And very much, although you referred to a 2015 uh, World Bank um, uh, um, program or, or um, uh, project, um, even more so now, I think many people are looking to infrastructure to be the solution to how we have a sustainable and in inclusive recovery. Um, is, is there anything specific in, in the way you're thinking about this that's going to be useful in informing the, the debate that we're having now about um, the, the, what is a perceived need to use infrastructure as a leading way of trying to lead us through the sort of post-pandemic um, uh, recovery and also to deal with the climate crisis. Thank you, Sam. I think it's it's a very poignant question. Let me start with the, the, the climate issue and connect it back to the sub-conversation we were having about, about cities. So the single, in, 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 in my view, the single biggest opportunity for sustainable green investment is going to be cities in the emerging world, right? And so think about the two billion, 2 billion to 4 billion people moving into cities in the emerging world. That suggests the lion's share of infrastructure that needs to be built is going to be in the emerging world. And in particular, it's gonna be infrastructure in cities. The good news here is that we have the opportunity to actually build, um, because in some places, these will be cities that will be essentially starting from scratch, right? Laying out those dirt ro roads for future roads in cities. If we do this in a green way, right, those 2 billion people moving into cities in the emerging world can have much less CO2 emission per capita than their counterparts in, in, city, in, in, in urban cities that were built in the past. And so I think this is, a, this is a particularly exciting and important time to be thinking about these issues. And it also connects to COVID. In the following sense, so what do we know again from the from the, from the cities are effectively large labor markets, and people move to cities to be more productive. That's not a very exciting or romantic way to describe cities, but that's effectively why people move to cities. And what the literature basically shows us is that the key to making a city productive is um, to have 
an environment in which people can sort of get to their job in an hour or less. That seems, that sort of turns out to be sort of a sufficient statistic. So if you can build cities in the future, right, that have people living in denser areas, but can commute efficiently and um, in an environmentally, environmentally sustainable way, we can, there's an opportunity to do some substantial leapfrogging here. On the other hand, if we don't do this <laughs> and we just have sort of urban sprawl, right, then we're kind of boxing ourselves into a very, very unpleasant future. Just connected to COVID for a minute, Tim, I think it's a very important point. As we're seeing, we're only as strong in the global economy as the weakest link from a country perspective. And think about all the productivity of cities, right, is predicated on people being sufficiently comfortable living in proximity to one another, right? And so the, the, the welfare gains to be had from increased welfare gains you know, economically, but also um, environmental gains from having greener cities uh, is predicated on people being comfortable from a public health perspective living close to one another. And so greater access to vaccines, medicine, and so forth, and greater public health infrastructure and greater cooperation in public health infrastructure is deeply connected to what we need to have a green urban recovery. And again, frankly, largely driven by what's going to happen in the, in the emerging world. And just to take it one Step further, and I'll pause it because it's been a rather long answer to this question. But um, going back to the, to the point about Lewis, so the Lewis model, is, as we know, you know, his great insight, which basically presaged all of the growth that happened in, in, in China and India and much of the developing world between you know um, the seventies and where we are today, and largely in the late 19, mid, mid late nineteen nineties, was that where it's profitable to invest in capital and we have lots and lots of underemployed workers, um, those workers get employed in better, into more and more jobs over time and eventually their wages will start rising. But in the inter interim, it's good for people to be absorbed into, into jobs because their, their, their incomes are higher in the formal sector than the informal sector. And so we think about the countries in which this urban migration is happening. These are precisely, these are the poorest countries in the, in, the, in, the, in the world by and large. They're largely in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is precisely where the, 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 the labor force is growing most rapidly, right? And so there's an opportunity to create jobs, reduce migration pressure, uh, create a greener environment. Um, if we can just have the foresight to, frankly, it comes back to our bank, provide better data to have more informed conversations so like the ones we're having today, about what other things need to be in place to make this happen. Thanks. And, and I should, should have said that we, we had I, partly that question that, that, that I synthesized various things I saw um, was inspired by a question from Karel Samuda from Jamaica, which I'm ah, sure would have been yes, I'm pleased. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, um, I, just we're, to, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, good. Um, Maybe, maybe we'll just close with you perhaps saying a word or two about Arthur Lewis and, and what, what, he's, what his, you know, 
is a sort of source of inspiration in, in, in your career. And I think to the economics profession in general, just to perhaps finish with a, a slightly human touch to, uh, to, to, to proceedings. I don't know if you would yes. like to say a word or two about that. I'd be, I'd be delighted to. Um, <clears throat> so I first learned of Arthur Lewis. I was taking an undergraduate course in economic development with a professor at UNC Chapel Hill named William Darity Jr., um, more commonly known as Sandy Darity. And we were studying, um, we were studying the Lewis model and um, Professor Darity happens to be African-American. And we were chatting, he said, you do know that, or the, and he knew that I was from Jamaica. He said, you do know that Lewis is from the Caribbean. And I was maybe 19 or 20 at the time, did not know that fact. And so for me, it was a great source of personal inspiration to, to find out that here was this gentleman from the Caribbean who had gone on to, to accomplish great things at the LSC and beyond. And I will note, when I was a, a junior in college, I wrote a letter to Arthur Lewis, he was then at Princeton, asking him about a program uh, that was being, a summer uh, program that was being run at Princeton, it was the American Economic Summer Program. And Professor Lewis actually took the time to respond to my letter saying he was no longer in charge of the program, but he was referring my letter to somebody who was. So Arthur Lewis took the time as a Nobel Prize winning economist at Princeton to respond to somebody he'd never heard of who was studying under economics as an undergraduate at, at UNC Chapel. And that spoke volumes to me. And I remember when I later in my career, when I went, when I met Bill Baumel, when I, uh, Bill was um, on the faculty at NYU, when I became Dean, um, Bill talked to me about just what a kind man Arthur Lewis was. And so to me, Arthur Lewis was not just a brilliant man, a man who was of great inspiration to, um, to economists of color and economists from the Caribbean, um, but he's, I think he's an inspiration to all human beings because of his, his, his decency, his kindness, um, and just showed us um, that you can be an intellectual giant and still be a very good and kind human being, and I think we need more of that in the world, Tim. Well, that, that's a, a, a wonderful closing Remark, but I should also say there's some other. There's another element of Arthur Lewis that I've al always been inspired by, and that is that he he really understood that that, that there was a that there had to be a bridge between academic research and policy, and I, I think that that's particularly relevant to your presentation today. That you know we need the kind of rigorous academic thinking. But then if it's going to influence um, the kind of work we, we, we do in policy, it, it needs to be translated. And, and you've, you've provided us a wonderful example, very much, I think, in the spirit of, of, of Arthur Lewis, of, of, of trying to, 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 to be on both sides of that. And, and uh, you've given us a, a really fantastic uh, uh, lecture. Thank you also for responding to questions. Apologies to those whose questions I was unable to convey to Peter. Um, I think we, we can save the, the chat so you'll get to see some of those in case you're in, uh, you, you, you wish to see them, Peter. But um, thanks for spending the time with us this afternoon. Thanks to all of the audience for, for being here and for contributing through, through questions. Um, it's been a wonderful occasion, I think a fitting occasion to honor the memory of, of Arthur Lewis, who means a lot to, to LSE as, as a very distinguished alumnus. Um, with that, I'll say good afternoon and, and thank you for, for being with us.